listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. The ushers are coming forward this morning. You can turn in Luke chapter 4, or actually Luke chapter 1. We're starting this new message series today called Miracles and Meals. Miracles and Meals with Jesus through the book of Luke. And they're also coming, the ushers are coming with some kids packs, kids, Harvest Kids, we welcome you here today, sitting with your parents, and, and uh, we're, we're glad that you can be here, and we have some things for you to follow along in the sermon today. There's going to be things for you to fill out and, and to follow along with what I'm talking about here today, because we, we believe the Word of God is for you, and we, we trust that today that you will follow along, as the adults will follow along, and, uh, and that together we will be changed and we will be taught from the Word of God and transformed by the Word of God. Luke chapter 1, and, and already Bibles have been handed out. If you still need a Bible, they're available on the back table. We would encourage you to, to help yourself to, to one of those Bibles. So as we start this series, today we're going to be looking at a great, great catch of fish. How many of you like fishing? Any, anyone here, you, you enjoy fishing? How many of you have caught a fish at least once in your life? Not ate fish, but caught a fish. Okay, most of you, many of you have all caught a fish. Cool. You know, it's kind of fun doing that kind of thing. And I kind of put it out there to, to some of the folks in the church this week and said, hey, send me a picture of any fish that you may have caught. And so a few people actually um, sent in some pictures. And look at this nice little fish that Tristan caught. I think he just caught this actually this, this past, um, just in the month of June, they were off camping as a family, and so he caught this nice fish, and his dad had to touch it and get his hands dirty and all that kind of thing, you know. And then, then this picture, we got this from Pam, and uh, Pam caught this on her honeymoon. I think she caught a bigger fish than that, but, uh, but this was a nice little, was this a tuna that they, that they caught, you know, five pounds, something like that, nice little fish. Uh, next one here, Kevin Weens. Um, this was a salmon, a 20-pound salmon that he caught somewhere on the, uh, off the island somewhere and in the ocean, and, uh, and so he quite enjoyed that. Do you see progression here in the size of fish? Look at this one. This is, this is me. Uh, many years ago, 38-pound uh, spring salmon that I caught in Terrace, B.C. when I was on my pastoral internship. And um, that was, was quite the catch. Spent one hour fishing, landed that fish, didn't have to fish anymore because I caught the big fish, you know. And, and so that was great. And then, then you see Tom on his honeymoon. Um, he's, he's going for, this one they figure 150 pounds. Was that a marlin? Okay, so in Jamaica, just off the island in Jamaica. So you see the progression here, you know, like 150 pounds. Look at this one that Nathan sent in. <laughs> Yeah, he, he caught this in, in the month of June, Kalamelka Lake. Um, they're, they're growing, they're stocking them big there. I, I trust it was a catch and release because I don't even know if that would, would even make it on an hors d'oeuvre plate or something. But um, anyways, you know what, it's fun to fish, it's enjoyable fishing, but when you have to fish for your, for your livelihood, it's no doubt another story. And we're going to be looking at that in a little bit as we look at a miraculous catch of fish from Luke chapter 5. 
And, uh, but we're going to start, as I said, in Luke chapter 1. But there is so much more to this miracle than this great big catch of fish that took place. And as we are digging into the Word of God this summer, as we go into the book of Luke, we look at the miracles, the miracles that Jesus performed, as well as the meals that Jesus had with people. Great significance, great meaning, great help to where you are at today, because that's what God's Word is. We believe God's Word. We uphold God's Word. We believe God's word speaks to us today. It transforms us as we take his word and as we live his word in our lives. But in order for that to happen, we have to get into the word of God. And so how many of you this summer, you're probably perhaps planning to take some time off and you have a book that you would love to read this summer? How many of you have a summer, you usually have a book you'd love to read? You know, okay, some hands going up. Well, I'm going to give you all a homework assignment. So kids, you may not like this very much, but you're back in school. Adults, Get on it. This is something I encourage you to be doing and I encourage us all at least twice this summer to read the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. It's 24 chapters, so you can do a chapter a day and even miss a day or two somewhere in the month. Read it once in the month of July. Read it again in the month of August. And, and just don't read it as an assignment. Pray ahead of time and say, God, speak to me through your word here today as I read the word of God. And the book of Luke has been written so that we can be transformed, so we can know with certainty. So I encourage you to be taking the gospel of Luke and reading it along with one another this week this week and throughout this summer. Encourage you to ask and to remind one another throughout the course of, of this week and, you know, and through this summer. Hey, are you reading the book of Luke? Are you, are you, are you in the word of God? Are you, what are you finding out in the book of Luke as you read it? And so encourage you to be doing that. This is an amazing book of the Bible, so let's get started. First of all, a little introduction to the gospel of Luke. First of all, the, the, the author was, was Luke. Um, and he was a doctor. So kids, I think that's something you might want to fill in on your, your outline there. Luke was a medical doctor. He was a beloved physician. He was someone who loved people. Sometimes, you know what, doctors can be really, really smart people, but sometimes they can kind of lack some, you know what, bedside manners, they will call it. Well, well, Luke was someone who really loved and cared for people, and we see that in the way that he wrote, as well as in the, the Gospel of Acts, because he also wrote the book of Acts. And so Luke was a medical doctor, but we see from this, he was a historian, he was a theologian, and he was a very humble man, he was a very loyal man, and so we see these attributes in this book, and, and this is what we find out about him. He was very dear and loyal to Paul the Apostle, he traveled with Paul on, on some of his, if not all, of his missionary journeys, right up with the Apostle Paul, right until the Apostle Paul died for his faith. He also wrote the book of Luke, or I mean, the, obviously the book of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts, which is a detailed history of the early church. It's a historical history of how the early church began, and so, so Luke wrote that as well. And we find out a little bit about Luke in the introduction, in the first four verses. These first four verses to us just may seem like, you know, hey, this is the introduction. But this is four verses we have that, you know, that the chapter and, ref and, and verses were added later on. And, and this was actually all one run of a sentence, a very long sentence. And it is written in the highest form of Greek. He wrote very fine Greek. He wrote in, in, in very persuasive and very powerful words. And these first four verses are powerful words written in the highest form of Greek that we find 
find in the New Testament. And he gives this introduction. And we find out that he is writing this book for, as well as the book of Acts, he's writing it for a Roman official named Theophilus. We don't know a lot about Theophilus. What we know, what we do know is either he was considering the faith or he was already a new Christian and he was possibly even the benefactor, the one financing Luke to be able to write these and to travel with the Apostle Paul. And so Luke is writing this as a historical account and he is, is, is writing it for Theophilus and he's writing it for all of us here today. And in this introduction, we see that even Luke says I was an eye, that he met with eyewitnesses. He said he studied other historical documents. And he's written now an orderly account. He's gone and he's done his research. He's pulled it all together. And under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we have the book of Luke here today. And we see the, the claims of Christ. And so his, um, historically, it is accurate. Theologically, he's brilliant. Because what he does is he takes... Old Testament texts, prophecies about Jesus, and then he shows how Jesus fulfilled them, and we're even going to see that in part of what we're going to be covering here today. And so we see that historically and theologically, he took great care in piecing together the word here that we have before us today. And at the end of verse 4, just near the end there, I encourage you even to write this, to underline this in your Bible. In Luke chapter 4, or, or chapter 1, verse 4, he writes that, I've written this, he says, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. He's writing this so you could be certain about Christ. So you could, if you have questions, this will answer for you who Jesus Christ is. And we will see Jesus through the lens of, from Luke here, who did the research in, in, in all of this. He wants us to know with certainty who Jesus was and who Jesus is today. And so we see this in this gospel. When we understand who Jesus is, who Jesus really is, even today as we get into the Word of God and we, we, we do this research and we look at the Word of God, it's life-changing when we truly understand who he is. And when you follow with a progression, it will pierce your heart as we see and understand the power of the gospel, the authority that Christ has to not only do great and amazing miracles, but to change lives and to change the eternity of men and women, boys and girls. And so today we're going to look at one of the early miracles in, in, in Luke chapter 5, but we're not going to look at Luke chapter 5 quite yet. We're just building up towards that. We're going to look. This is so much more to do than just a row, row, row your boat kind of miracle that with a boat full of fish. There's so much more about this. And what we learn in this passage even here today of what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Front and center, what does it mean to know Jesus Christ, to be a Christian to be born again. We're going to see that in a very clear way. And um, we are nowhere near that. So you can just go right back up to number one. I don't know what happened to your slides there, but you can just go up to the number one slide. You're giving all of it away so far. So just if you can back it up there, Vicki, that would be great. Um, all right, so the first thing that we see here about being, about a true disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who is gripped by his authority. I think you're going to have to just do a little reset or something there because um, that all shouldn't have shown up at once. It was doing it. It was working earlier. I don't know. Dwayne, if you could maybe help him on that, that'd be great. 
All right, so we're going to see that, that true disciple, or was it correct? Oh, it's showing up different here. Sorry, my fault. My fault. Sorry about that. Technology, just not used to it, you know, so um, sorry about that. All right, so the first thing we see that true disciples of Jesus Christ are gripped by his authority. In order to understand this, we have to look at, at chapter 4. So, so now flip over to Luke chapter 4 and verse 14, and, and Jesus is home. He's home with his family. He is in Nazareth. And what does he do? He goes to the synagogue. That's what rabbis do, and this was something that Jesus did. He goes to the synagogue, and as his custom, he was handed a scroll, and he starts to read from Isaiah chapter 64 in verse 8. And, and this is what, what Jesus, Jesus ends up reading, and we find this in Luke chapter 4. In verse 14, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to see at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After Jesus read this passage from Isaiah, he sat down. Now, he wasn't done. Now, when I sit down on one of these chairs at the end of the sermon, that means I'm done. For Jesus, when he sat down after he read the scripture, that just means he was getting started. He was getting moving here with what he was going to do. And so he ended up, that's when the rabbi, they would read the word of God, then they would sit down and they would teach. And then at, at, at times they would also field questions from, from the teachers and from those that were there. And so Jesus is speaking the word of God and now he's sitting down and he does some teaching. And in verse 21 of Luke chapter 4, he ends up saying, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus, what did he say? He says, I have come to proclaim the good news. I'm here. The one, the one you've been waited, waiting for, the Messiah, is here to preach the good news of the kingdom. And it says in verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? I mean, can you imagine, you know, that Jesus, you know, he reads that scroll, he reads the word of God so much better than anyone. That is just, he reads with such good inflection, and he's got such a good speaking voice. Oh, that's so nice what he has to say. That, you know, that's Joseph and Mary's boy. What a good young man he's turned out to be. You know, he was just the son of a carpenter, you know, but, but look at how well he's turned out. But then we see that he began to speak and he began to teach and it says with authority, with conviction. And he told the people in the verses following, he says, Israel, the people of Israel, you people have had a long history of not accepting the prophets. And so he's, he's, he, he, in his teaching, in his preaching, now he's starting to make it a little uncomfortable. Now he's starting to meddle with the people. He's meddling a little bit and, and, and we see that they're getting a little ticked off. They're upset. And they end up, it says, they were filled with wrath and they wanted to kill him. Preaching of the word of God, when God's word is preached with authority, it demands some sort of a response and, and, and it is a response of, yes, I'm going to follow, yes, I'm going to listen, or it will make you angry and will make you want to do something about it. God's word demands a response. And it demanded a response here as Jesus was speaking, and it made the people angry. 
I wonder today, how is it with you when you hear the Word of God, when you read the Word of God, when you hear it proclaimed, whether you podcast sermons or whether you listen here Sunday after Sunday, what does God's Word do to your life? Do you just kind of sit there and take it and, 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 and you know, does it make you angry? Does it make you frustrated at times? At times it will because God's Word convicts us. It shows us what's wrong in our life. It shows how we're living wrong or we're thinking wrongly and, and, and it steers us right back onto the right path. But that's not always an easy thing, is it? We're prideful people. We oftentimes don't want to do what God's word tells us to do. But God's word exposes our heart. It convicts. And we have a choice whether or not we will follow it or not. And so in, in Luke chapter 4, verse 31, we see Jesus just prior to that, he ends up leaving. He's like, I'm out of here. Goodbye, Nazareth. I'm out of here. You folks don't want me around. I'm not doing miracles. I'm gone. So he goes to Capernaum next. And so he moves on to Capernaum, and, and incredible things happen. In verse 32, it says, the people are astonished and amazed at his teaching. And, and it says, for his word possessed authority. These people were softened by his preaching and by his teaching. And they were astonished in a good way. The other people were astonished and mad. And these people were astonished and their hearts were convicted. And they're saying, there's something about this man. He's not just like the regular guys who stand up in the synagogue. He's preaching. He's speaking with some authority. There's an authority to this man, Jesus. And you see, when Jesus walked the face of this earth, there was confusion, just as there is today about who Jesus really was, who Jesus really is. There is that confusion even today. And there's so many different Jesuses out there. There's the prosperity Jesus. There is the Jesus that just wants to make your life better and, and no bad things will ever happen to you. Oprah has her version of Jesus. There's all kinds of different versions of Jesus out there. And, and there's so much confusion today in religious circles. The JWs have a different version of Jesus. The Mormons have a different version of Jesus. Even within ev evangelical circles, there's a different version of, of Jesus that is, that is being proclaimed in what people are believing. And so we see the confusion then, we see it even now. Was Jesus truly the Son of God? Or was he just a good prophet, a miracle guy, a good teacher, a good rabbi? Who was this Jesus? Who was Jesus? That's the question even being asked today. And I think some have even taken it down to the, to the four L's. Was Jesus just a legend? Was it just some storybook? Is this just a fairy tale book with some good stories in it? No, it is not. Was he a legend? Or was he a lunatic? Was he just some crazy guy just going and doing this thing? Or was he a liar? Or was he the Lord? And you see, there's all this confusion even today as to who Jesus is. And there's even confusion at times in this room on who Jesus really is. Because we don't accept his authority. If we're not accepting the authority of Jesus, we're confused on who Jesus really is because we don't see him as ultimate. And if we're not living by that, it shows that where we don't even see him in that, in that vein. You see, when Jesus walked the face of this earth, there, there was that confusion. There is that confusion today. But you know who was not confused about who Jesus was? Absolutely no confusion. The demons. You read in verse 33, the demons weren't confused on who Jesus was. They knew full well who he was. And it says, and in this synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you 
have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out, came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. It's like, what is with this Jesus? He speaks with authority. He commands demons to be quiet, and they're quiet. He demands them to come out. They come out. There's something about Jesus. You see, demons are very orthodox. Their theology is spot on. They fully know who Jesus is. There's no question that he's the almighty son of God. And Jesus, when he tells them to be quiet, they're silence. When he commands them to leave, they're gone. And here we see, what did Jesus just, what did we read in the previous, just, just a little bit earlier? He says, I have come to set the prisoner free. Those that are oppressed, release. And that's what he's doing. He's doing what he said he would do. He sets them free. Folks, we have to understand this. Understand this for the sake of our society. We are to proclaim Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. You take the name of Jesus off of this planet, away from this region. All Christians just kind of vaporize and take off and just go live somewhere on a commune. You get rid of the name of Jesus. There is no hope for this world in the face of the devil's power. The only one who can stand up to the, to the enemy is Jesus. That's where the power is. It's at the name of Jesus that the demonic world is disturbed and will ultimately one day will be destroyed. You see, the devil isn't afraid of church services. He's not afraid of religious people who just go through the motions and kind of do their thing. But the devil and his minions are not comfortable with Jesus and with the word of God. And we need to know that the name of Jesus is the name of above all names and one day every knee will bow to Jesus Christ in total submission. Then in verse 38, we see Jesus goes to Simon Peter's house. So, so he's, he's, he's at the synagogue, he, he casts out this demon and people, <gasps> whatever, and then he's like, I'm hungry. And so they go over to Simon's house. Simon says, come on over, you know, we'll cook up something, we'll get something, go probably have some fish, you know, uh, somewhere, you know what, ready to go on a frying pan for you. And so Jesus comes there. Oh, great. Peter's mother-in-law is sick. She has a fever. And so we see, what, did Je what does Jesus do? He goes in. And, and, and it's just not just a light fever. She was gripped with a fever. You know one of those fevers when you get a fever that, you know, just, just means that, that, you know, even to brush your teeth it hurts. You know, you just can't even, you're almost paralyzed because of this. It, it actually says here she was gripped with a fever. So this had a strong, strong uh, effect on her. And Jesus comes in and he heals her. And what does she do? She gets up and she starts cooking, cooking lunch. She starts serving when Jesus touches your life, if you have been touched by Jesus, the automatic response is a life of wanting to serve. What can I do? What can I do because of what you have done for me? When Christ has touched us spiritually, if he's changed you, one of the fruits of that, one of the, the, the results is we want to serve. We want to look for opportunities to roll up our sleeves and say, what can I do? After what you've done for me, Jesus, I'll do it. And so we see his mother-in-law serves. 
Then it's already getting sunset. It's getting, getting late. And Jesus, instead of retiring for the night, what does he do? He starts healing people. And it says everyone who was brought to him, he laid his hands on them, which is very strange. You never see a miracle. This is the first time you've seen any miracle happen where, where, someone's, where over and over Jesus is laying his hands upon them. He's showing, he's touching them. I'm real. I'm the son of God. I have this authority, but I love you. I love you. And he touches them from the unclean lepers who, who no one could touch. Jesus touches them. He shows them this love and Jesus, he heals everyone. Because you basically, I mean, could you imagine what would happen in the city of Kelowna, in this region, in the Okanagan, if everyone in one evening was healed of every physical ailment, every demon was cast out? What would happen? Amazing. And so Jesus does this. And what Luke is doing here in these first three chapters, we... We even see the birth of Jesus. We see all of this. But what he is doing is revealing the authority of Jesus. He is sovereign over the demonic world. He is sovereign over sickness. And soon we're going to see him sovereign over nature. A disciple of Jesus Christ is gripped. A genuine disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who is gripped by the authority of Jesus. Understanding he is sovereign over all things, including your life. He knows what is going on in your life right now. He knows your heart. He knows your desires. He knows the area of struggles. He knows the area that you're filled with joy today. He is sovereign over all of these things and he knows all things and he bids us to come to him. But I wonder today, who is Jesus to you? What authority does he have in your life? How about the word of God? What authority does it have in your life? Is it a suggestion book? Does this come across in your mind, in your thinking, or even in your words? I know God's word says this, but. If we have that word, but, at the end of that statement, he is not our ultimate authority in our lives. We become our authority. When we pick and choose what scriptures we want to believe and which ones we want to follow, we're not worshiping God. We're worshiping ourselves. And this is a daily thing that we have to keep battling. And this is why what we're talking about today is so vital and so important for us to, to know the power, the strength, the authority of, of Jesus in our lives. We are worshiping ourselves when we live with that word, but. I know God's word says this, but. Are we gripped by the authority of Jesus and his word? And secondly, we see a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, will follow with obedience. Will follow with obedience. And so we're going to read here in, in Luke chapter 5, verse 1. We're getting to the passage here that we're going to quickly go through. On one occasion, it says, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, look at the hunger that there is. These people are wanting the word of God. And they're pressing in to, to hear him preach. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is basically the Sea of Galilee. Just, you know what, how sometimes here in Kelowna, how many versions of, of is it Highway 97 or is it Harvey? You know, like, like what is it? Where is it? You know, you see that. And so this was the, the Sea of Galilee, but here Luke refers it to probably by the official name of what the people called it right there, Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. 
Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put, out, put it out a little from land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let, your, and, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And, then, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Now you have to understand what was going on here. These boats were not like this little rubber dinghy. You know, that, that, you know, that we, we blew up this morning. You know, just, it wasn't a rub-dub-dub, dub, you know, a couple men in, in the tub kind of a boat. The kind of fishing boat that, that they were using back in those days, it is believed to be about 30 feet by 8 feet. All right, so that would basically be from that speaker to this speaker. That's 30 feet from the front of this chair to about here. So this is the size of the fishing boat. And the catch was so huge in these nets that it filled up to the point that these boats were sinking, filled them up with fish. Amazing. Have never caught anything like this. You see, Peter, along with his business partners, James and John, had been fishing all night. This was tough, hard work. It wasn't in the boat, you know, putting the, you know, casting, you know, in a nice leisurely kind of way and, and, and catch it. This was hard, backbreaking, on your feet, bending over in a boat, putting your net out, dragging it along for a while, pulling it back in, seeing if there's any fish, resetting the net, doing this throughout the night. And they do this all night, these heavy nets that are huge. This is backbreaking, hard, difficult. Peter would have had callous, just, you know, just, just, you know what, these, these hands, I met a guy when I was a youth pastor, there was a guy in our church that did a lot of steel work. He worked with steel and that. And, and I'm telling you, I mean, you would shake his hands. It was like, you know, like when you need to exfoliate something. I mean, his hands would do that to you just by shaking his hands. It was just like so hard and, and, and he had huge fingers. They were huge sausages, you know, kind of thing. But, but you go to shake and it was just rougher than anything. I said, dude, how do you even touch your wife? Like she wouldn't even want you to, you know, like, like to, to give her a back rub. You'd probably tear the skin right off of her. I mean, it was just amazing. I mean, so anyways, Peter was probably like this. He was a hardworking guy along with, with James and John and, and the other fishermen. This was hard work. And so it's early in the morning. They got skunked. They didn't catch anything. And so here they are cleaning their nets, folding them all up so that they could, you know, get a bite to eat, you know, and, and, and then no doubt go home and sleep and then head back out the next night to go catch some more fish. But this day was different as they're cleaning their nets and they're folding their nets and they're getting ready to put them back in the boat, get them all ready for the next day of fishing, the next night of fishing. Jesus was there. Jesus, this, this miracle man, this guy who could, could cast out demons, this guy who could speak with such authority and, and who healed, healed Peter's mother-in-law. And so, so Jesus is there. So I'm sure they're listening as, as they're doing this work and, and as this is taking place, Jesus then is getting pushed in. The crowds are building. And so Jesus says, Peter, can I borrow one of your boats? Can you take me out into the water? And so I'm sure like Peter's like, I'd love to, Lord. And I'm sure his heart was one. Yes, I'll do it. Like there's something, but I'm tired. I'm weary. And so Peter 
takes Jesus into the boat, and what does Jesus do? He sits, notice. He sits and he teaches the people. And he, as he's teaching them, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that Peter was listening. Just like all of you are listening here right now, right? You know, here the sun is shining down. He's kind of tired. He's a little sleepy, you know, and sometimes looking now to see if I see anyone sleeping, you know. I mean, you get a little comfortable in church sometimes, right? You, the seats are nice. A um, number of weeks ago, my dad was here sitting right in the front, and my dad fell asleep a couple times while I was preaching. You know, he did say, oh, that was a great message, Dad. And I said, in your dreams, you know. And anyways, I had, had a good time with that. Um, he's cool with that, I think. And anyways, I mean, so here's Peter, no doubt listening to what Jesus is saying. But there's a lot of things going on in his mind thinking, we got skunked last night. No fish. How am I going to provide? I've got family. My mother-in-law lives with us. How, are we going to, how am I going to keep providing? If we have another night like this with no fish, we're in trouble. And yes, he's, he's listening to what Jesus is saying, but he's also hearing you know, these other voices in his head, the worry, the concern of, of how is this all going to work out? And so then Jesus finishes speaking. We don't know if this was a long run or a short run of what Jesus was, you know, how long it was, but then Jesus says to him, he says, let's go out into the deep. Let's get you some fish. And I'm sure Peter was like, oh. Again, just really, we just cleaned them. We just folded them. We have them ready to go. Like, really, Jesus? Like, really? Really? You want me to do this? Like, we're tired. And no offense, Jesus, but you're a carpenter. You grew up in a carpenter shop. I'm a man of the sea. I've been fishing all my life. I was brought up as a fisherman. My dad was a fisherman. I know where the fish are and when they come into the nets. Jesus, you, you're an amazing guy, but you're out of your league here. What do you know about this? That would be like me going onto a construction site. We have some, some guys who know how to build houses here. You know, it would be like me showing up on a construction site and starting to boss the workers around or, or boss the guys in our church around and say, uh, actually, you know what, you should really start with the, the framing first and then pack the foundation later. And, you know, you could do the plumbing, you know, right away. I mean, start installing the toilet and all. You know, I mean, I'd come in there and, and, and they're like, Meldon, go do your job. Go do what you, you don't know. Any. And I don't. I, I don't know anything really very much about building houses. I love watching them get built. I enjoy living in a house, but I don't know how it happens. You know, and so Peter's no doubt going on in his head like, I know, I know about fish, Jesus. You know nothing. No offense. But what does Peter say? He understands the authority that Jesus has. He understands the word by which he is speaking. He sees what Jesus has done for healing the sick, including his mother-in-law. And he says these amazing words. These would be amazing words to be a reality in our own lives. In verse 5, And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night long and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. I like the way the NIV, this is the way I, I memorized this years ago, because you say so, I will. I encourage you to write that down. Because you say so, I will. Jesus, because your word says so, I'm tired, I'm weary, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to do it. Even though it may be hard and difficult and I may pay the price, because you say so, I will. Whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about, and you're tired and you're thinking, oh, 
Really? Like that makes no sense. But developing the attitude and the mindset of Peter, because you say so, I will. And because of that obedience, he was someone who was willing to submit to this obedience of Jesus. He would follow through with obedience. Because you say so, I will. And because of that, Jesus displays his power and his authority. His power over nature. Fish by the hundreds, if not thousands, are filling up these nets to the point of filling basically this stage area full of fish to the point that the boats are starting to sink. And what's Peter's response to all of this? Yeah! Look at me, folks! I rock! I'm awesome! Jackpot! Fish fry at Peter's house tonight. The mother-in-law's cooking. She's feeling really good these days. Let's go back. I'm not going to have to work for weeks. We're set. Oh, and, and it, you know, no doubt a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit to him thinking, man, if Jesus could just do this a number of times for, for James and, and John, we could finance this whole ministry. I mean, we could get this whole Jesus and Peter fishing company. You know, is, is this what's going through his mind? Is, is he already, is this where he's all going with this? Peter's response is what happens to someone who is gripped by the authority of, of Jesus and the Word of God and is willing to follow in obedience. Next thing we see what Peter does here is he worships in humility. He's down on the ground. He is undone. He understands the mighty power of Jesus and what has just happened here. He has seen all the other miracles and now this, now this just got personal. This is mind-blowing what he has just done. And Jesus saw Jesus for who he really was. He saw that he was sovereign over all things and he falls down at the feet of Jesus. He's undone, he's broken, he sees his own sinfulness. What does he say? Away from me! I don't deserve this. I'm a sinful man. Depart. Like, I don't even deserve to be around here. You know what Peter was doing? He was looking at grace. He was looking at pure and total grace of God. And he felt totally unworthy. You see, we see that in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah got a glimpse of the glory of the Lord. And what happened when, when Isaiah got a, got a glimpse of it? He wasn't pulling out the phone for a selfie or anything like this. Oh, I got, I got to document this. No, he he's, woe is me, and he's undone. He sees, he sees his sinfulness. He sees who, what's really in his heart, and he hates it. And yet he finds the forgiveness, and he finds the love. In Job, Job 42.5, encourage you to write it down. Job 42.5, you read Isaiah's encounter, or I mean Job's encounter here. He says, before I have heard about you, God, but now I have seen you with my eyes. And what does Job do? He repents. He's undone. He's broken. Folks, when we truly understand the gospel and what, he, what, what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ, and that we are unworthy, and we see Jesus for who he is, almighty, all authority. No statue. You know what? There's some, some pretty amazing statues of Jesus around. There's some pretty nice paintings. None of that can contain Jesus. You, get, you know what? Jesus cannot be contained by the beautiful mountain ranges that you will see. Jesus cannot be contained by the galaxies, the hundreds and thousands of galaxies. He's in it all. He's complete authority. And the fact that he would save and love 
and touch the life of a sinner like you and me? When we understand that and know that we're undone, we're broken. He's done this for me. When we worship the Lord Sunday after Sunday, it's so easy to take this for granted. When we take the Lord's Supper once a month, oftentimes what we do here, it's not just some nice little ceremony. It's reminding us of what He has done for us. His love for us, that that He went to the cross. He bore our sins. He took it all, the wrath that we so rightly deserved. And He enters our life. And we stand amazed in His presence. We're blown away. That's why we examine our hearts on a regular basis, not just once a month before communion, but on a daily basis, committing ourselves, repenting of sin, committing ourselves once again to the authority of Jesus, who He is, praising Him, worshiping Him, thanking Him. See, today it's so easy to pray the prayer. We get people, you know, and and sadly, oftentimes I'll even hear people say, well, you know what, they prayed the prayer, so I guess they're saved. And their lives aren't demonstrating anything, no fruitfulness in it at all whatsoever. They've never been undone by what Jesus Christ has done in their lives. They just like, oh, think, oh, this is, this is just a nice little transaction. It's a smart investment for me to, you know what, invest some time with the Lord in church, pray a prayer, fill out a card, you know what, walk the aisle, get baptized, just, you know what, go through the thing and not fully, truly understand what it means to be a genuine disciple of Christ. This is someone who is undone by Jesus and responds in this kind of humility. This is the response, not just of Peter, but for anyone who is a disciple. You see, so oftentimes we respond to to the call of salvation because we kind of think, well, it's good fire insurance. Keep me out of hell. Here, kid, pray this prayer. Oh, good, they prayed this prayer. Good, they're in. No, it's not some magical incantation that takes place by just saying these words. It's a life-changing relationship with the King of Kings and it's understanding his authority of who he is and desiring to, to live a life of obedience in that knowing that we fall often. This wasn't just a one-time thing for Peter. You can read later on, write down John 21. You see, at the end when when Peter kind of really messed things up, he denied Jesus right before he was crucified, cursed even that he even knew Jesus. And what happens on the beach? Again, miraculous catch of fish. Again, Jesus shows up. And what does Peter do? He's undone. And he's broken and he comes in humble repentance. And Jesus, oh, not you again, not a, you denied me. Get out of here. Get out. Is that you? No. He's like, welcomes him with open arms in love. That is who he is over and over and over again. And even the fact that it's that over and over again should just undo us once again for his, his incredible grace and mercy towards us. The gospel is understanding our unworthiness. Listen to this, folks. You've got to understand this. The gospel, to be a genuine believer of Christ, is understanding our unworthiness and the holiness and the authority of our God. And in that, we know that we cannot save ourselves. We're ruined. We're done. And so what do we do? We do what Peter did. We drop and we, we fall at the feet of Jesus to the sovereign one, king of the universe. You see, cocky and arrogant 
Christians, cocky and arrogant pastors and churches and denominations, kind of with that attitude, God's lucky to have me. God's lucky to have my talent and my ability or my resources or my giftings. And, you know, this church, you know, is, is so blessed because of me. That totally contradicts the message of grace. It totally does. The heart of a follower of Christ is one of, of genuine humility and, and continuing to grow in that. Not fake it, but continue to, woe is me. Having these Peter moments there with Jesus at the beach. Jesus, I'm not worthy. And when we're cocky, we're arrogant, and we think we're something special or we deserve something, it contradicts the message of the gospel. We worship in humility, true worshipers. Worship in humility, not once, but over and over and over again. In a few moments, we're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper. This isn't snack after, after the sermon. This isn't just a tradition or just something we, we, we just do. This is, this is an understanding of us being undone. This is an understanding of, of what Christ has done for us. And it's, it, it's a reaffirmation and a recommitment just saying, Jesus, I thank you. I worship you. I surrender myself to you. We take the word of God as an authority. And in 1 Corinthians 11, it even warns us, as those who eat or drink in an unworthy way, we just make it a ritual, a tradition, a snack after the sermon kind of thing. It says, are eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. And this is a serious, serious thing. Why? It's not, it's not a harvest thing. It, it's, it's in the word of God. And lastly, we see here, what is the next response here after worshiping in humility is abandoning everything to follow. A true disciple abandons everything to follow Jesus. And what in, in verse 10 it says, And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed. Look at what Jesus said. Don't be afraid, Peter. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Who's living in fear today? Don't be afraid. If you're in Christ, don't be afraid. He will never leave you. He won't forsake you. You're afraid to, to live for Christ? Maybe it's going to be like Jesus. One of the hardest places to live for Christ may be your family. But we live for him. Don't be afraid, he says. And then he says, from now on you'll be catching men. That sentence in Greek literally means from now on you will be catching men alive. His whole life before this was all about catching fish for death to end up in frying pans. And now he's about catching men and women and children and teenagers alive for Christ. Instead of just going through life as he's known it, he has a new mission. And the good news of the gospel tells people about themselves, tells them about who Jesus is, and gives them hope to catch them alive. For eternity. Now, you might thinking, I mean, think about this. Peter, James, and John, what do they do? They are walking away from this, these two boatfuls of fish. As far as we know, they didn't even deal with it. 
that they abandoned everything. They left it, said, I'm done. We're following Jesus. They left the biggest payday of their lives, the best catch that they've ever made, and they say, we're done. We're going to follow you, Jesus. So what does that mean for us? Do we do the same? Are we all to abandon our jobs, our vocations, our houses, our, everything that, that we have and forsake everything in order to follow Jesus? We have been commissioned to go and to make disciples, to catch men and women and teenagers and children alive for Christ. But what we are to abandon is and to forsake is the worldly mindset of just making it all about this world, making it all about me, abandoning that me first kingdom mindset and seeking his kingdom first. Me first when it comes to serving. Me first, oftentimes it is when it comes to my finances and my time. And if there's time left over, I'll make some time available for Jesus. I'll make time available to serve him and to tell others. I'm busy, you know, I've got to... No. A genuine disciple abandons everything and says, I'm willing to follow whatever needs to be done. We are to follow Jesus and join him in the work of catching fish, catching men and women alive. Who are you desiring, striving, praying to catch alive for Christ? Are there people that you are witnessing to? Are people in your life that you should be witnessing to and you've, you've just kind of thought, oh, well, I'm busy. No, this is where we abandon those things to catch people alive. It's about surrendering everything and saying, God, it's yours. God, it's yours. It's abandoning that right to hold on to that hurt that's been caused and say, I abandon that and follow you, Jesus, and I seek forgiveness. It's taking your hands off that situation that you are trying so hard to control in your hands. Say, okay, God, it's yours. That's how we abandon that's how we abandon all things for Christ and say, I give it to you. It's about getting baptized if you haven't been baptized as a believer in Christ. That is one of the, the, the early steps that, that we are told as genuine disciples to be baptized upon confession or of faith. It's, not, it's in the word of God. It's not, it's not a pastor thing. It's following in obedience in that. So, well... I've been, I was baptized years ago. What's that next step of obedience that he's calling you into? Is there an area to serve? Is there an area to serve? We, we've become easily such consumers when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the church. Areas you can serve. Harvest kids needs work. Serving, worship. Some of you have worship skills. Some of you have admin skills, different areas. Love for you to abandon everything and, and pick up a towel to serve the body of Christ, and to serve our community. There's many opportunities in our community to serve for Christ. It's abandoning that me-first mentality and see how can I serve with a God-first mentality. There are incredible, and not, not always easy, but incredible things in store. Look at what ended up happening in Peter's life. He abandons the fish. James and, and, and John, they abandon the fishing life as well. And what do we find in Acts chapter, in the first book's early books or chapters in the book of Acts, we see they're catching men and women and children and teenagers alive. Three thought Peter preaches, stands up. He wasn't trained as a preacher. Doesn't matter. Jesus made him into a preacher because he was obedient. And he stands up and preaches. 3,000 people get saved. Continue reading. Next thing is 5,000 people. It's amazing. He's catching them alive. He's not catching fish for death. He's catching men and women alive for Christ. And notice, 
Peter wasn't alone. James and John were right behind him. They were right with him. They too, they left everything they followed. Peter's obedience in the boat inspired others. Your obedience as well as your disobedience are inspiring others right now. When we are obedient for Christ and live for Him, it's going to inspire others towards Christ. When we're disobedient, it will inspire others towards disobedience. Who's following you? Who's watching you? Who are you leading? You are, you, I'm not a leader. Yes, you are. We all lead someone, some people, whether it's in our homes, whether it's in the workplace, children, grandchildren, neighbors, co-workers, friends. Your obedience or lack of obedience will have an effect on people around us for all eternity. And we have been commissioned to abandon all and to follow and to serve Christ. Who's waiting on the other side of your obedience? So today as we will be partaking of the Lord's Supper and spending some time in worship, I would love for you to examine your heart in light of these four things you see on the screen. Have you been gripped by the authority of God's Word? Does God's Word hold an authoritative place in your life? Are you following Christ with 100% obedience? Is there someone you need to forgive and let go of a situation? Is there a bitterness that you have been harboring that you need to, to let go of? Is there an area of, that, of sin you need to come clean on and, and, and say, I need help, I can't do this on my own. I need others around me. Is there an area of obedience you've been putting off? And today we want to worship then in humility, in brokenness, that as you partake of the Lord's Supper, parents, please, please, please instruct your children in this. And if their hearts... They, if they don't grasp what we're talking about here today, be bet, even though they maybe have prayed a prayer, it'd be better for them not to partake, that they need an understanding of what we're talking about here today. This is important. And that their even attitude and their heart this past week has been one towards obedience, towards you as parents and not rebellion. I remember a number of times as a kid growing up, Communion Sunday, feeling my dad's hand on my knee and just saying, you're not partaking this week, Melvin. Like, who are you? And he's, he says, I'm the authority in your life. And, and you know what? This week you've been demonstrating a life not honoring to God. This is an important thing as we talked about, but this is a time to come broken, to come messed up, to come. It's not for the perfect because if it is, no one would partake. And what we're going to be doing, the band is going to come and you guys can come and get ready and, and spend some time in reflection and confession and prayer. And then you can come and take off, tear off a piece of bread and dip it in in the cup, and then just go back to your seat. But this is a time of worship. This is a time where we are in awe of what he has done for us. If you don't know Christ today, worship with us and continue to, to even read the book of Luke along with us this summer that you would get to know this Jesus and his love for us, but his demands are, are, are strong and yet the rewards are amazing. They're out of this world. And this is what we are called to do. And so I'm going to pray and then we'll worship and partake together of the Lord's Supper. Father, we come to you now and we thank you for this example of the life of Peter, a man who was an ordinary kind of guy just going through, through life. He wasn't brilliant as it comes to the Word of God. He wasn't trained in, in that way, and yet we see this heart of obedience. We see someone who, who ended up saying yes to you and worshiping 
and leaving it all. Lord, may we find that same spirit within our own heart. We would press on like Peter in those areas of obedience. We would deal with those areas of sin, that we would see your word and who you are as authority in our lives, that we are not the authority. May we confess of any known sin in our lives and, and make things right with those that we may need to be making things right with, and that we would come to you in worship and adoration and with hearts of just great appreciation that we would be undone by the gospel as we sing today about how deep is your love for us. That you would do this for me. Melvin Lutzer, a big mess up. A guy who struggles with being obedient to the word of God. God, I confess that before you. And yet, as I come to you in confession, I know that you hear me and you forgive and I may not feel worthy, but you make me worthy because of the cross, because of your bloodshed for us. May your spirit dis descend upon us and change us and transform us today, we pray. In Jesus' name.